This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Pentagon Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program continues to take shape, or take new shape, that is. The latest curve, thousands of more companies will be required to get third-party assessment under CMMC version 2.0 than industry initially realized. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. And Justin, the CMMC has taken a lot of twists and turns. Tell us about this latest update, because I think the initial feeling was just a few companies would have to have this complicated and sometimes expensive assessment. Right. Well, DOD is rolling back an aspect of the the CMMC 2.0 plan that would have allowed some 40,000 companies to self-attest to their cybersecurity practices. When DOD first rolled out the big changes in November, there were about 80,000 contractors total that they said handle controlled, unclassified information. But officials said at the time that only about half of those managed CUI. That is truly sensitive if it were to fall into the hands of U.S. adversaries. And so they said the other 40,000 would just have to do a self-assessment rather than to get audited by a third-party organization. Well, during a February 10th town hall last week, Deputy DOD CIO David McCune said further analysis has shown that, in fact, all 80,000 will require third-party assessments. Unfortunately, it looks like pretty much everybody falls into the category of either being a clear defense contractor or having some critical industry tie that pretty much all of those are going to end up being very important CUI. On the surface, just from you know our analysis so far, it looks like all are going to require the, the level two assessment. And Justin, this change came out after McCune and the DOD CIO office officially took over CMMC, correct? Right. It came out a couple of weeks ago that the CIO's office is taking over CMMC from the Pentagon's acquisition directorate. That was made official in a memo signed by Kathleen Hicks earlier this month. But McCune said the CMMC program has effectively been aligned with the CIO's office for several months. So last week's, or the the memo a couple weeks ago, was really just formalizing the new arrangement. But of course, now we're seeing that the CIO's office is really taking on responsibility for this big, complex program and having to roll out some of these changes that might rile industry a little bit. And one of the key things is figuring out these details, like how many contractors need third-party assessments? How do you get all of those companies assessed so McCune's office is, is now the one working with the CMMC accreditation body to ensure that there are enough assessors out there to audit all 80,000 companies now. The Pentagon has to initiate a rulemaking process so this can start showing up in defense contracts, and the CIO's office is involved in, in is leading that as well. But McCune suggested that it would actually be more than a few years before CMMC requirements actually show up in every defense contract. We want to phase this in over perhaps a longer period of time than than three years. We haven't nailed that down yet. That's also part of the rulemaking and negotiating with the AB what we think the capacity is going to be to get through that group of 80,000 companies out there. And that's Dave McCune, the deputy DOD CIO, saying you're kind of on the hook, but not quite yet, I suppose. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, you're also reporting these new developments are raising new questions about how they actually define controlled, unclassified information, CUI. 
This has been an undercurrent to this program the the entire time, really, because CMMC is all about how contractors protect CUI. It's not about classified information. There's a separate process for that. And, and there are more than 120 distinct categories in the federal CUI program, ranging from you know weapon systems designs to farming equipment designs. So it really crosses the gamut. A recent paper published by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance recommended a wholesale wholesale reevaluation of the federal CUI program because of this explosion of different categories and complex protection and handling guidelines. So when a DOD program office stamps something CUI and sends it to contractors, in the future, that means they're subject to CMMC. And DOD CIO John Sherman acknowledged the concerns around CUI during a separate event hosted by FCN Nova this week. We talked about how much stuff is stamped CUI and if are, are too many things getting stamped CUI. That's the kind of information I want to take back and so it doesn't trigger additional levels of wire brushing and oversight that may not be necessary. I want this to be a dialogue but also see from the private sector side that there's a cost to not doing something like this. I know CMMC has a lot of churn around it over the past couple years, but this ought to be something that we all see the utility of. It may not be something that is necessarily relished, but I want it to make sense to you, and I want this to make it harder for our enemies to do what they're trying to do. Well, maybe the criterion should be, would you want China to have this in its hands? And if not, then it's CUI. But is there anything actually the CIO office can do because CUI judgments originate with different components? That's right. It's actually a separate directorate, the Office of the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Security that oversees the department's CUI policies. So the CIO's office will actually have to work with that undersecretariat to actually make any changes that they might want to make. McCune did say that the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Security as an interest in getting some guidance out there regarding CUI. So stay tuned for that. But there's certainly a lot, a lot of questions about how DOD marks and disseminates some of this information. And Justin, is there anything else we should know about this general CIO office approach to CMMC? Because it's really rolling out pretty quickly at this point. Yeah, well, they're, they're not making any massive changes in direction so far. And as McCune said, the CIO's office has, has effectively had oversight of this program for, for the last several months since the CMMC 2.0 changes were laid out. But it's clear that they're kind of putting CMMC within all these other existing programs that the CIO's office already had for working with the defense industrial base on cybersecurity. They oversee the DOD Cyber Crime Center where defense contractors are actually required to report major cyber incidents affecting DOD information. They also oversee cyber threat information sharing, where DOD can share data about the cyber threats they're seeing out in the world. And that program has been limited to clear defense contractors so far. There's only about 1,500 of those. But the CIO's office is running a pilot program for sharing that information with non-cleared companies. And they're working to update regulations so that they can make that a more permanent program. So, so during the town hall last week, McCune really made clear that the CIO's office sees CMMC as an opportunity to build on those partnerships with companies in the defense industrial base and to start talking to them. We hope that this is also going to solve the problem that we've had where I can't positively make contact with all 220,000 companies right now if I wanted to get some information out about threats that are going on worldwide. This is going to help us solve that too because everybody will be registering in a system 
and telling us who their contact information is so I can get messaging out to the whole DIB if need be. That's Dave McCune, Deputy DOD CIO, talking about how they see the CMMC program as a way to really get in touch with every defense contractor out there. And as you stated, stay tuned for more. That's right. There's going to be a lot more coming. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my 
my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today.